It's good to see you this morning after a snow week off. You know, the, the snow thing is, uh, I, I remember as a kid being really excited when it snowed and got everything canceled. Were you excited when you were a kid and that happened? As an adult, I'm not sure I feel quite the same way. It was, especially when you get old, it's a disruptive week. I've forgotten what day of the week it is, what time it is. It's kind of a Kind of a strange experience, but here we are back on the other side of Snowmageddon in one piece. Can you believe in one, in one two-month period we've survived via doom and Snowmageddon, and here we are. And it, it really wasn't all that bad when all things said and done. So we're going to continue on in the, in the series that we've been in looking at the Gospel of Luke. And as many of you know, Luke was a doctor. He was a physician, one of Jesus' earliest followers. And the really cool thing about Luke when he tells his story, the gospel, you'll, you'll notice it's, it's, it's quite a long gospel compared to the others because Luke likes detail, and he gives detail in stories that we don't get in other stories. And, and we get one of those today where we get to look at how Jesus trained his followers to do ministry. And uh, Luke takes some time to settle in and tell the story in longer form, and we pick up some principles about training to be Jesus' representatives in the world. Now, uh, as I, when I think about training, I, I think about a lot of my years in young life and pastoral work and training pastors as a seminary professor and as uh, starting church planning movements and doing all kinds of different training with young life. But probably nothing strikes me more in training stories than the stories my dad told. My dad was a guy who um, was a spirited youth, not unlike his adopted son, Randy, and he managed to make it through Stadium High School in Tacoma, and that was about it. And uh, he, he was summoned up uh, to be in World War II, and somewhere out of the blue they said, you ought to be an officer. And he's going, you're kidding me. I barely met out of high school. And next thing he knows, he's a second lieutenant. He's on a bomber base in England. And then a bunch of people accidentally get killed, which happens in war. And all of a sudden, he's a, he's a fairly high-ranking officer, and he's basically running a, the technical side of a bomber base. And his job to train crews and planes and get them in the air to fight a war against Nazi Germany, a war that at the point that he came in, we weren't particularly winning. And, and it, was, it was intense. And he was on a base with these B-17 bombers, big planes. They held 10 people in their crew, tons of bombs. And, uh, well, you, if you've traveled at all post-war Germany, and Western Europe, you can see what those bombs did and the, and the cost that it was to, to win that war. And my dad lost a couple of thousand men in two and a half years. It was quite a, quite a story. But he'd get these young pilots who, like him, were just, they were in high school a year ago. And now they're a pilot of a plane with a crew of 10, and they're supposed to fly into hostile territory without instruments, with crazy weather, flying wing to wing, with not just 10 other planes in their squadron, but like a hundred squadrons. And so literally the sky would be full of B-17s and it looked like a, a, a horde of insects. All the sky of England and they in mass fly over and drop their bombs at different places over Germany and eastern France to open the war effort and then they'd hopefully come back. And the training for this was arduous because my dad had these guys who had hardly flown a plane and now he had to teach them to fly in formation with planes full of bombs. And Boy, his stories were legion, and he said that for him, the scariest part of the war was the training. And part of that was um, when things went wrong and you lost people, it's horrible. It was a training exercise. 
But then that, that training exercises and all the problems they had showed how fragile this whole effort was and, and the degree to which these guys, every time they climb in a plane, were putting their life on the line. And he told me stories about teaching guys to fly in formation and a young guy's in a, a pilot's doing a great job, but he forgets that he's flying stacked and he goes up in altitude without looking up and basically buzz saws the plane underneath him in two with his, with his engines and everybody goes down. Um, one guy thought it was really cool to smoke sooner than the, than the clearance light came on. And he said, oh, this is a, I've been on a couple training missions. This is no sweat. He lit a cigarette while pl- fumes were still in the fuselage of the plane and hadn't aired out yet and blew up his plane and took a couple other planes out with it in a training exercise. And so training's really important. And it's, uh, it can be kind of dangerous and harrowing. And if I were with Jesus at this time, I'd find this assignment that I got sent on, if I was one of these 72 folks, somewhat harrowing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you this training story and make a couple reflections on it and then talk this morning before we come to the Lord's Supper a little bit how this might apply to us as a church. So this is Luke chapter 10, and this is uh, oftentimes talked about the training of the 72. Um, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and every place where he was about to go. So Jesus has been hanging out with 12 disciples, and now he's times six that. And he sent out these 72 people all at once in a training mission. They're all going different directions. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. The verb the church has missed for 2,000 years. Look back here. It's right here in the Bible, verse 3. Go. Go. That means don't stay here. That, does, that means don't hang out together with just Christian people. That says go. Um, underline that in your Bible. Circle it. Draw arrows at it. Go. Okay? I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals, and don't greet anybody on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, a person of peace, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near you, but... When you enter a town and are not welcome, go to its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Be sure of this. The kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the miracles that were performed in you haven't been formed in Tyre and Sidon, and they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be lifted to the heavens. No, you're going to go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus' powerful words to us this morning... It's been 2,000 years since you said this. How do we comprehend this as a church, as individuals? Help us to absorb what you have to teach us here today and perhaps apply it to our lives even in this week to come.
we ask your blessing on this, uh, on this text and the words that we'll share around it. In Jesus' name, amen. I always liked certain parts of this thing. I used to be a very heavy guy, and I liked eating, so the emphasis on eating wherever you went was always my specialty. Um, I, I remember this, eat whatever's given you without asking any questions, and I thought, I, I never liked that more than I was on a mission trip. Nancy was along. We were in Manila, Philippines, and we were in um, the harbor of Corregidor, uh, where Corregidor is, and we were on our way out to visit that island that uh, uh, General MacArthur guarded to the, to the last uh, in World War II. And we were on the beach, and they came up and they served this gigantic platter of fresh lobster. And I love lobster. And I walked out there, and I was thinking, ha, oh, that Bible verse, eat whatever they give you and ask no questions. <laughs> And then I watched them, and they were taking these lobsters that had just been boiled, and they cut them down the middle and took all their gooey guts and used the guts like butter on the meat. And all of a sudden, I went, doesn't it say in the Bible that you should stay away from meat offered to idols or something? You know, I like, there's got to be a reason I can't eat this. this there's no way I'm going to eat gooey lobster guts, you know, for butter. But, but anyway, the, the text here always, it has that attraction and repulsion. Just thought I'd let you know I tried to live this a couple of times, Okay. But what do we pick up from Jesus? Okay, amen, let's go. Um, Jesus' training mission. What, it, it represents a broadening and deepening of his work. Because up till now, we see Jesus in action by himself or with one or two or even the 12. And now all of a sudden, that community ex explodes in size. It's not just three. It's not just 12. It's not a small crowd. It's, it's 72 with jobs to do. And so... Uh, Mark was mentioning volunteers this morning. Jesus was very good at enlisting. And basically, he's now enlisted up to 72 people, and he sends them out, and he does this advanced training. And this is something that Jesus has wanted his church to do forever, is go. And the part where he says, once you get somewhere, stay, the church has done a really great job for 2,000 years of cloistering itself together in little buildings and hanging out together, all the Christians with all the Christians, and the stay where you are with people, we do that part really well. But the go into all the world, we don't do so well. The church is inherently shy, and we tend to cluster around with each other. We tend to think that maybe people out there aren't interested in what we're about or think we're weird, and that we ought to just keep our mouths shut and keep our faith to ourselves and, and stay in a cloister. And Jesus says here, uh-uh, to these 72, if you're going to follow me, today and be fascinated in what I'm doing with you all, then you're going to have to follow me all the way. And part of my following is not going to be to gather you to me, but it's going to send you in my name to different places. It's a very different picture than we tend to paint of the church because one of the things is, I think Jesus recognized that faith was meant to be nurtured in the church and nurtured in the community of faith, but it's meant to be lived in 98107, 98101, 98103, or whatever your zip code is, day-to-day -day life in our daily work, on the airplane flights we take, on the drives we do, on the people we meet at the grocery store. This is our ministry field, the, the people we work with. The ministry field we have is not in the church. And I often used to hear that I was involved in Pentecostal church, and people were talking about, I'm waiting for the Lord to show me my ministry. And my ministry meant something I could do in the church that was demonstrable in front of everybody else. Or it might even be my ministry is the ministry of hospitality and folding bulletins. But it was always located inside the church. As opposed to an understanding of when you really find your ministry, 
you find the thing that you're able to do wherever you go with the people you live with, stay with, and eat with seven days a week, most of the hours of the week. So I think Jesus inherently here in this text reminds us and screams to us that we've always got to be training to go and we've always got to be going in his name and that we learn by doing. You know, if a, if a typical church was going to train for an evangelism and outreach thing, here's what we'd do. We'd announce it for seven weeks here and get a lot of energy going, right? We'd, Mark would jump up and down like a little chimp and get everybody to come. And then Summer would give a convincing story. I'd stand up and tell a joke. And um, somebody else would stand up and say how this training changed their life 10 years ago when they did it. And, and then we'd have a seminar. And we'd bring in outside speakers who would teach us how to reach out. And then we'd get notebooks, and we'd fill in our notebooks, and we'd do small group studies on how to reach out and be the church. And then we'd have a follow-up seminar with some worship and another guest speaker, and we'd take some more notes, right? It's like that Fly Fishing Club of America back in the Midwest who is dedicated to everything about fly fishing except fly fishing. Their charter is, in the winter, we're there for the winter time for you to tie flies and practice flying in the Fly Fishers Club of America in Wisconsin, but the one thing we never do is go out fishing. In a way, that's what the church would do. You have these, hey, we prepared the church to reach out. We had all these seminars, and what'd you do then? Well, everybody took their notebook home, and they put it on the shelf, and they waited for the next set of seminars. Jesus doesn't train that way. He says, go. I remember one time, Summer, I hope that I won't be betraying or, or harming our friendship here at all, but we were talking about training to be pastors, and I said to Summer that my pastoral supervision theory uh, with people that I'm training in ministry is that I'm a lifeguard. Huh? That means I, I throw you in the pool with no life jacket, nothing else, and I watch you swim. And if you're drowning, I'll jump in and pull you out and maybe even resuscitate you. But if you're expecting me to get in the water and swim next to you the whole time, that's not how I train. And, and I think Jesus was this way too. He didn't just train people in a classroom. These people had never done anything. And he said, here's, the, here's your instructions, go. Stay with nice people if they're not nice and throw you out. Tell them, sorry, I hacked you off and go to the next house and leave. And then just stay there and, and learn to do what Jesus does in his ministry in the midst of these people. And, and the training is, is on the fly. And so if we want to learn Jesus' way, the text that we're reading here tells me we've got to jump in and do it. Talking about it, training for it, going to classes might have some value, but on the whole, not very effective. What really is effective is going. And then these 36 teams go out, and I think there's something in here that I like, and that's that we're better together. I work with an organization now called Centered, and we do intergenerational mentoring. I'll talk about that a little bit at our, our, our time over lunch. But one of the things we're committed to is we tend to go two by two to things because there's a power of people seeing a unified team coming to be with them, right? So when I was in Young Life, one of the things that often led kids at high schools we went to to investigate a relationship with Jesus Christ is they would look at the relationship that myself and other people on the Young Life team had with each other. Nancy worked in Young Life, her and her team, and the relationships that the team members in Young Life at that school had were attractive to these kids who were looking for authentic, loving, open, deep, committed relationships. 
with people, including one with Jesus Christ. And so the modeling of two people together in ministry is, is really nice. And two people are there to encourage and, and give accountability to each other. And you'll notice that some of our friends we don't agree with theologically, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, when they go around, you'll often see them in pairs of two. And the reason you see that is they're following this biblical text. Whether we agree with their other biblical theology or not is, is beside the point at, at, at this juncture. But they, they take this seriously of it's better to go together, that, that two are always always better than one. And, uh, and I think sometimes seeing us relate with each other is powerful. I heard stories from the green bean that would say, you guys that work together at Sanctuary really seem to like each other. You're fond of each other. And that there's... That's winsome, that's attractive to us. So I think that's part of what we learn in the story. And Jesus tells these people to stay put, not to jump around. And this is, this is something else I've noticed. We felt a distinct calling to this neighborhood in about 2003. Let me tell you how that calling to this neighborhood took place really quickly. What happened was I was on a board of a group called Footstool Foundation. And the Footstool Foundation um, provided money resources to, to different ministries around town. And the board of the, of the fund foundation were the recipients. So basically, we, this one guy that headed up the thing put a bunch of money in, a couple million bucks, and we all gave each other grants out of it and supported each other's ministries. Well, a ministry I was involved in previous to this uh, and Taproot Theater were involved in the Footstool Foundation. And Scott Nolte, my friend that's founder of Taproot Theater, said, you know, Greenwood is, we've seen what you've done in Lower Queen Anne, what you guys did in the U District when you were at UPrez, and, you know, frankly, Greenwood is a pretty decrepit neighborhood spiritually. We don't have any of that, and we're full of these bars that are just places that are like smoldering hotspots full of criminals. You know, the cops, somebody's on the lam in Seattle after committing a crime, and the cops are out here in plain clothes walking around all the Greenwood bars to find the perp, you know. And that, that was how the neighborhood was described to me. And this neighborhood was without a church. It was gentrifying, out of control, and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And it seemed right to people that we take a look at starting a church here. And Taproot made themselves available and a grant came to us to rent a building to start a coffee shop in, and somebody basically gave two-thirds of what it costs to build the Green Bean Coffee House next door when it was next door to here in our first location. And that's what drew us here. Now, we've been here about 15 years, and I think we've established a beachhead. This community is probably a better and safer place because of the presence of Sanctuary and some of the businesses that have started here and the partnerships that we've created over this 15 years. Isn't that beautiful? It takes time. And we've stayed here. By the way, let me, let me just talk about staying power for a second. What do you mean you've stayed here? Well, let's see. We moved in here. We set up a coffee shop. We got it going. And then I got a call at 4.30 in the morning from Summer saying our coffee shop and our church are on fire. And we operated that coffee shop in five different locations in 12 years. This church has been located in two or three different spots with fire disruptions and whatnot, and, and things have changed, and we've gone from being here and having freedom of movement to now sharing the space with a, with a coffee provider when we're in church. Things, 
things change over time. But we established a beachhead here, and, and we've made a difference in this community because we stayed, and we hung out, and we found the people of peace, and we've connected with the people of peace in this community, and that's beautiful. And it's great to be here. Maybe God wants us here in Greenwood for the next 100 years. Or maybe Jesus is going to come to us and say, good job in Greenwood. There are new opportunities. Go. The Green Bean's closed now after, 50, after 12 years or more of operating. It's great. What do we do? How are we called to express ourselves in the Seattle community? What way are we going to do that? Who is the target of people that God is calling us to reach? seems to me that right now we've got a really large generation of children and young adults coming up that have been raised outside of church and, and don't have the gospel. And it seems to me like organizations like Young Life and partnering in things that would reach children and family might be a really powerful thing for us to look at. Or maybe God wants us to look at another coffee shop thing. Or maybe we're going to form the world's next great rock and roll band and um, I don't know what. <laughs> that would be my dream. That one. I like that one, too, yeah. We'll be the U2 of Greenwood. No. Um, uh, anyway, um, what, what I'm getting at here is that who knows what God has for us next? These, these 72 people that go out, go out and do what they do, and they come back, and they got stories. They must have been afraid to death when they went out. I think of those young pilots my dad was working with, you're going to put live bombs on this airplane, and you're going to send us up, and we're going to fly wing to wing, plane to plane, thick as flies, and you're telling me that's for a noble effort and I can do it? They were scared to death. Do you know how many of them really wanted to do that? Zero. And the ones who said, I really, really want to do that, they had these special places they sent to them to be checked out psychologically, right? And, and, and so the fact is, a lot of times we're fearful to do the new thing or the thing we're called to. But then God honors it and God works through it. And these 72 people that must have been scared to death get sent out. I don't know how long they're gone. It doesn't, isn't tracked in Scripture. Let's say they're out three weeks a month. And they come back and hear the stories. Jesus, you came up against evil and told demons to depart, and they did. And you told us to do that in your name, and they would too. And we did that. And they left just like they did for you. You told us to preach the news of the kingdom and people would be thirsty to hear about the kingdom of God and they'd want to experience the joy of life in Jesus Christ and eternal life here and now. And, and, and they came forward. And these 72 frightened, inexperienced people come back doing jumping jacks telling Jesus about everything that's going on out there. And of course, Jesus looks at that and he goes... Yep, you know, I watched what you guys were doing in one of the other Gospels that said this, and here's what I saw. I saw Satan falling from the sky like lightning spent its final time. One last flash. You know, I, I literally saw the kingdom of darkness and evil being snuffed out and the kingdom of light being ushered in because of what you 72 did. That's Jesus reporting on the people serving him. And we possess that capacity as a church. We have the capacity in Jesus' name to go where Jesus tells us to, to do what Jesus tells us to do, and we have the ability to turn 
any neighborhood on its ear for Jesus if we're willing to go. Where will that be? You know, somebody said to me, you must be really upset that the green bean is closed. I go, I'm not upset. I'm kind of shocked we made it this long. You know, and that's pretty cool. I know a lot of the Christian enterprises don't make it six months. What do you mean 12 years? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sad. But in another way, I'm kind of glad because things have been pointing the direction that that might be the way to go. And now that we've made that decision, we have all this capacity for what's next in ministry. It's all out there in front of us. And sometimes the Bible speaks to us individually. And there may be something in here about being trained that you really want to learn from in this text today. And if there's something there for you individually, that's great. But I think this is one of these corporate texts. And what it's corporately saying is, folks, are you ready? Do you want to be counted among the 72 that said, yeah, I'll go try this craziness? Or do you want to be on the sidelines and play it safe? And see, the text before this one, Jesus spoke very strongly to people that want to be on the sidelines and play it safe. He said, those who seek to save their life will lose it. That text precedes this one. This is what people who are willing to lose their life for Jesus' sake do and what the results are. And I am thrilled about what the possibilities are for sanctuary going forward. I'm thrilled to now be a senior part of this congregation and follow the leadership that Mark and Summer and the council of this church have, and I think we've got great things ahead of us. And I think we ought to think great things and be, be great things. We're not a tiny church in influence. We're a tinier church in number. But we have the capacity unified to do things beyond our own wildest imagination if we're just willing to go. So as you come to the table today, I want you to ask the question, or say it like this, Lord, I'm coming. And then test yourself and say, as I come to Jesus, am I willing to go where he sends me? And Jesus, where is it you might want us to go? For if all of us began to pray that for this church, I think God will begin to speak to us and give us an idea of what that is and send us to that faithful place that's next for us. It may be within inches of here. It may be within blocks of here. It may be right here. I don't know where it is. But come to the table saying, Lord, I'm coming to you. Now where do you want to send me?